Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's reign, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The baby's cries echoed off the stone walls of the Roman palace as Emperor Caligula made his way into Sister Agrippina's chamber. It was mid-December in 37 CE, and she had given birth to a boy. But Caligula wasn't happy. A boy meant another challenger for the throne Caligula had just inherited. After all of the torment he suffered under Tiberius, the last thing Caligula needed was a sudden challenger. But Caligula put on a smile and greeted the new parents, who Caligula preferred to keep on his side. After all, he knew his sister was a cunning power seeker, and the baby's father was a consul to the Roman Senate. This boy's noble blood was hardly in question. Still, Caligula was irritated at this new mouth to feed. He gazed down at the little baby, so weak and vulnerable. As a joke, Caligula said the boy took after his ineffectual great-uncle, Claudius. Maybe they should name the boy after him. Even better, why not name him after Caligula himself? Ultimately, Caligula's joke would backfire, literally. Agrippina didn't need to name her son after an emperor. She planned for her son to become the emperor. What Agrippina didn't plan was for Rome to burn to the ground. Or for her son, Nero, to be the one responsible. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots, this season, we'll be looking at the bloody reigns of Rome's most notorious emperors. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we're diving into the rise of Emperor Nero, the young artist placed at the head of an empire, who subsequently watched it burn to the ground. This week, we'll discuss the conspiratorial politics of Nero's mother that left him with a lonely childhood even while she guided him to the throne. We'll also hear how Nero's deep need for adoration brought Rome to the edge of catastrophe. Next week, we'll explore the fire that raised Nero's capital and the smoldering political embers that burned away his base of power. We'll follow Nero in the final days of his reign as the last emperor of the Julio-Claudian dynasty and hear how his legend lived long after him. Up next, the explosive life of Nero begins. Hi, I'm Blair. Wanna hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams.
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. When Nero was born in December 37 CE, Caligula's reign was already becoming a dark time for Rome. Illness gripped the city, and the emperor was fiendishly holding on to power, no matter who he had to murder to do so. Much of the reason for Caligula's interest in his sister and baby Nero was about manipulating the boy's father, Gnaeus. Caligula was not liked by the Senate, and Gnaeus was a valuable ally to have in their ranks. Unfortunately, Caligula realized he'd made a miscalculation. Gnaeus wasn't an ally to anyone, including his own family. Gnaeus's only allegiance was to the bottle. According to Suetonius, a Roman historian of the time, he was a drinker and all-around angry man. His rage was well known. He gouged out a soldier's eye after the soldier criticized him, and he had even killed several people in fits of anger. When a young boy playing in the street didn't move out of the way, Gnaeus ran over the child with his chariot. Luckily, Gnaeus died sometime in Nero's third year of life, which left Nero firmly under the influence of his mother, Agrippina the Younger. To fully understand Nero's story, we have to get to know Agrippina first. She was the daughter of Germanicus, the beloved former heir to the throne who died before he could rule. Ultimately, this left the empire to Caligula, However, Agrippina still had an intimate view of Roman rule. At least, she did, until Caligula exiled her and her sister Lavilla for conspiring against him. Luckily, when Caligula was assassinated just four years into his reign, his often mocked uncle Claudius became emperor. And with 50-year-old uncle Claudius in power, Agrippina saw an opportunity. Agrippina grew up surrounded by backstabbing and plotting within the emperor's palace. She'd learned early on that for a woman to gain power and prestige was to play smart and be resourceful. So she would use her son Nero to her political advantage. But at this point, he was still a child. So when Claudius invited Agrippina to return from exile, she set out playing a long game of political chess. She waited and prepared to make the key moves 
that would bring her ever closer to the throne. Young Nero received a thorough classical education, but he took a particular interest in the arts. Supposedly, one of his babysitters was a dancer, and she taught Nero about artistry and emotion. This gentle encouragement planted a deep appreciation for the arts in the little boy. And much like his departed uncle Caligula, Nero developed a love for song and dance. And for attention. Nero wanted to be adored. He admired the musicians and athletes who gained the love of the people through their excellence. Nero learned to see artistic performance as equal to athletics. He longed to be a champion, even if it was as a dancer instead of as a gladiator. But his mother soon quashed that dream. When her son was around 11 years old, Agrippina found herself closer to the throne than ever. After Emperor Claudius discovered his third wife, Messalina Valeria, had a torrid and public affair, he had her executed. Suddenly, the emperor was newly single. Early sources maintain that Messalina had plans to conspire against Claudius with her new lover, which explains her execution. Others hint at the possibility of Agrippina being involved as the one who made the affair public in the first place. In any case, with Claudius now alone, Agrippina was in a good place to make her next move, marrying Claudius. As empress, Agrippina finally held the highest position a woman could have in Rome. Now she could pivot her focus from her own power to her son. It was time to start grooming Nero to be emperor. Agrippina realized the teenage Nero needed a more classical education. Nobody cared if the emperor could sing like a bird. He had to be a knowledgeable and confident leader. So she turned to one of Rome's most famous philosophers, Lucius Seneca. In 49 CE, Seneca returned from exile to become Nero's mentor, taking long and instructive strolls through the palace grounds with him. He taught with proverbs and bits of wisdom, leaving the teenager to work out for himself what the lesson was. For the first time, Nero was learning about the world of power and politics. His lessons with Seneca often related to patience and leadership. As the boy grew, Seneca aligned with Agrippina's goal of forming him into a beloved emperor. Seneca saw potential in Nero. The boy could either be another tyrant like his uncle Caligula, or a thoughtful, empathetic leader like Augustus. The aging scholar had lived under four emperors already. Now he had the chance to mold the perfect ruler. But Seneca wasn't the only person who had to see Nero's potential as a perfect ruler. Not long after Seneca became the boy's tutor, Agrippina convinced Emperor Claudius to become Nero's adoptive father. Nero's path to the throne was becoming clear, but it was far from certain. Nero was merely an adopted son, and Claudius had other children from previous wives. Luckily, Agrippina had one last move that would solidify her son's place as Claudius's heir, marriage. Nero was disinterested in power. 
He was happy with his artistry and enjoyed his lessons from Seneca. The last thing he wanted was to get married and succumb to the obligations of living in the emperor's family and putting on a show for the masses. But Agrippina didn't care much about her teenage son's opinion. Nero's rise wasn't just about Nero. It was about their family, the line of Germanicus consolidating power. And the best way to do this was to have Nero marry one of Claudius's daughters. So Agrippina set her sights on Octavia, who at the time was around 13 or 14 years old. Even though she was Nero's stepsister, Nero and Octavia were married in the summer of 53 CE. Nero wasn't merely an adopted son any longer. He was now Claudius's son-in-law as well. But 15-year-old Nero was unhappy. He detested his father-uncle and didn't care much for his new wife-cousin either. But he knew he had a duty to his mother and he wanted to please her. He reluctantly joined palace gatherings and gave official speeches in the Senate, usually written by Seneca. Slowly but surely, Nero was being introduced to the public as the young face of power in Rome, even though he still preferred singing to speeches. For the most part, Romans, both citizens and senators alike, accepted Nero. He had the endorsement of Seneca and a storied family to boot. It was all but certain that he would eventually rule Rome. All that was left was for Emperor Claudius to die. Of course, Agrippina had a solution for that, too. Coming up, the throne is suddenly empty, and Nero finally makes his own move. Hello, listeners. It's Richard from Parcast Network. We all know that when it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, and some don't. In our love story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, our love story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the story. For over a decade, Agrippina the Younger set about positioning herself and her son Nero to obtain power in Rome. She married Emperor Claudius, gave Nero the finest education in the empire, and married him off to Claudius's daughter. All that stood in the way of getting Nero on the throne was the emperor himself. And that was an easy fix. On October 13th, 54 CE, 64-year-old Emperor Claudius was poisoned. Accounts vary on how the poison was administered. Some claim that he was poisoned with mushrooms. Others claim that a physician administered a poisoned feather to him. 
Apparently, as soon as he'd taken ill, Agrippina sent for several key senators and the Praetorian Guard. In the early dawn hours, as Claudius's body grew cold, Agrippina and the others discussed the transition of power. The convenient timing of Claudius's demise led many ancient historians to conclude that Agrippina had poisoned the emperor. The most alarming evidence that Agrippina had known Claudius would die was the fact that Nero was quick to address the Praetorians as the new emperor. Agrippina knew that suspicion of Nero's rise to the throne would spread throughout the empire, especially without the public support of the Praetorian Guard, Rome's answer to private security. Since Roman soldiers were not allowed within the city limits, the Praetorians acted as the emperor's bodyguards and general law enforcement in Rome. Luckily, Nero had a close relationship with the commander of the guard, a man named Burrus. And of course, it helped that Agrippina had been involved in Burrus's promotion as sole prefect of the Praetorian Guard. Burrus's loyalty to mother and son was without question. After Nero's brief speech to the Praetorians, they accompanied him to the Senate, where Agrippina's allies quickly threw their support behind the teenager's official appointment as emperor. Within hours, news of this series of events had spread throughout the city. But rather than responding with suspicion at how quickly and seamlessly everything had moved, most Romans followed in the Senate's lead, pledging loyalty to their new leader. Emperor Claudius is dead. Long live the Emperor Nero. At 16 years old, Nero became the leader of the largest empire in the world, and it was all thanks to his mother. Though Nero was still largely ambivalent about the power he wielded, Agrippina was finally where she wanted to be. While Roman women were prohibited from holding any position in government, Agrippina quickly established herself as the leading voice in the palace. And Nero didn't seem to mind in the least. He knew that he had his mother to thank for his meteoric rise to power, that this was her dream. And like any good son, he wanted her to be happy. In fact, the new emperor was quick to show how much he loved his mother. One of his first acts was establishing an official password for the Praetorian Guard. Nero chose a simple phrase, optima mater. It meant best of mothers. Nero even had a gold coin minted, the first of his reign, and a typical power play by a new ruler. But this coin didn't just feature his face, it showed Agrippina's face too. This was unprecedented. They were featured on the same side of the coin facing each other, and her name was on the front of the coin. Nero was making it clear his mother was untouchable. Still, Agrippina wasn't one to leave her position up to the fickle power of love. She wasted no time in solidifying her influence on her son as the new emperor. She made sure Nero kept the loyal Burrus in close confidence, like a minister of defense. And Seneca became one of Nero's chief advisors, essentially filling the role of a chief of staff. Nero cared for both men and valued their opinions highly. 
but they were more loyal to his mother. Their advice to the young emperor often came after consulting with Agrippina. Nero even gave his mom an official escort, and he had the Senate moved from its long-standing home in the Roman Forum, where women were prohibited. During Nero's reign, the senators gathered in the royal palace, which made it convenient for Agrippina to eavesdrop on the political debates. Agrippina also handled most of the administrative decisions for her soft-spoken son, who was more than happy to leave business to her and keep practicing his art. Ancient Roman historian Cassius Dio even wrote, Agrippina managed for him all the business of the empire. She received embassies and sent letters to various communities, governors, and kings. When it came down to it, Agrippina was running Rome, which was fine with Nero because he was having the time of his life, especially at night. Nero quickly discovered a love for Roman nightlife. Under the careful watch of the Cohortes Vigilum, units of men who patrolled the city at night, Nero went to brothels, bars, and gambling dens almost every evening. The Cohortes Vigilum, which was like a night watch, was led by a praetorian named Tigellinus. Tigellinus was a conniving sycophant who fully supported Nero's vices. Nothing made faster friends than a shared secret, and he became one of Nero's most trusted confidants as he stood guard over the young emperor's frivolities. It was during one of his late-night excursions to Rome's seedy underbelly that 17-year-old Nero met a woman named Acte. She was a beautiful freedwoman and full of confidence, not so different from his mother. Nero was immediately smitten with her. They embarked on a passionate affair. Nero even brought Acte to the palace for trysts. Of course, with his young wife Octavia still in residence, it didn't take long for Agrippina to hear about Nero's affair from the poor girl. Agrippina was furious. Their family's hold on power was still tenuous. There were many senators who remembered that Nero was but an adopted heir. Others had grown annoyed by Agrippina's overbearing influence on the young emperor. She couldn't afford anything that might be used against her, so neither could Nero. Agrippina encouraged her son to abandon Acte. His marriage to Octavia gave Nero legitimacy, and neither the Senate nor the people would approve of an affair. But for the first time in his life, Nero refused to acquiesce to his mother. He was in love, and he even went so far as to try and convince key senators that Acte was of royal blood. Of course, his clumsy teenage lie didn't work. The affair between Nero and Acte eventually ended, perhaps due to Agrippina's meddling. Nero was slowly turning away from the influence of his mother and soon turned to the people who always gave him praise, his advisors. But Nero wanted to make sure his men were in fact his and not his mother's. Meanwhile, Seneca had long tired of Agrippina's domineering attitude and he supported Nero's sudden desire for independence. Then, 
Nero used the security of his newly trusted advisors to take even more drastic action. With Seneca's support and nobody else willing to speak on his mother's behalf, Nero banished Agrippina from the palace. Whatever hesitations the young ruler may have felt at this monumental change of status quo, he ignored them. After all, Nero was the actual ruler of Rome, and while he expected loyalty from those around him, he was the emperor, and he didn't have to offer his loyalty in return, even to his mother. Nero didn't simply put Agrippina on the streets. Instead, he sent her to their family estate in Antium, less than 40 miles south of Rome. Antium was where Nero had been born, and it was a place of comfort and isolation. From there, Agrippina's influence over Roman politics was severed. But now that Nero had effectively seized power, he had to lead by himself. And the first step was making sure Romans adored him. To earn their adoration, Nero decided to provide for his people where it counted. Their wallets and their bellies. The emperor founded a national lottery that was run from the palace. Apparently, whenever he would address crowds of Romans, he would throw small wooden balls into the crowd. Each had a number on it, and anyone with a winning number could come to Nero's palace to collect a prize. These weren't simply monetary prizes. Romans could win horses and chariots, slaves, and even land or property. Soon, Nero's generosity became legendary throughout the city. Nero also sponsored lavish games and entertainment, ranging from chariot races at the Circus Maximus to roaming performers in the streets. He was even said to perform poetry readings and songs himself from time to time. But most importantly, Nero fed his people. He provided free and steeply discounted grain to Roman citizens. In the early years of his reign, Roman bakeries were never without bread. Nero's popularity skyrocketed. The Roman poet Juvenal even coined the phrase bread and circuses to describe the way leaders like Nero win approval from the masses. It also helped that the young emperor was accessible. Nero didn't stay behind his palace walls decreeing his laws from afar. He was on the streets, greeting citizens without fanfare. He even remembered many of their names. He mingled at parties and joined crowds just like any other Roman, even if he wasn't the one hosting. Nero was the people's emperor, and he had finally gained the adoration he'd sought for so long and on his own terms. The first five years of Nero's reign were a time of calm prosperity for him and for Rome. But it wouldn't last, because Agrippina wouldn't let it. Nero was still enjoying the Roman nightlife incognito. And when news of his indiscretions and drunkenness reached Agrippina in Antium, she was enraged. Agrippina didn't hesitate to let Nero know of her disapproval. His illicit behavior was still a risk to his reputation their reputation. But Nero didn't care. He was young and beloved by those who counted, his advisors and his people. 
He didn't need Agrippina's approval. He was the emperor, not her. Of course, for Nero, this wasn't actually true. Deep down, all he had ever desired was his mother's approval, and she was the only one who didn't give it to him. So presumably, not long after his 22nd birthday, Nero even stopped bothering to see or speak to Agrippina, period. However, the move wasn't just because Agrippina was impossible to please. As it turned out, Nero had a new woman in his life. Her name was Papea, and her influence over the young emperor was about to bring chaos to his family. Nero's affair with Papea was more public than any he'd ever had before, and Octavia was enraged. She had tried to be a good wife, even if that meant leaving her husband alone in his impropriety and nighttime revelry. Unfortunately, Papea managed to do something Octavia never did, become pregnant. Not only was Nero in love with Papea, but she could provide him a son. Papea knew she had the upper hand and continually pushed Nero to divorce his wife. Nero was reluctant. Despite cutting ties with Agrippina, he could still hear his mother's voice in his head chastising him for ruining his image. According to ancient Roman historian Tacitus, Papea changed her approach. She began to quietly lament Agrippina's continued influence over her lover. After all, why was Nero so needy for his mother? Papea could provide him all she needed, she said. In fact, didn't it seem that Agrippina was the one who needed him? But word reached Agrippina of Papea's smears, and she didn't take this criticism lightly. She fought back, and in doing so, drew a line in the sand. Nero could not have both his mother and his lover in his life. This was the final straw for Nero. He was tired of trying to please his mother to earn her adoration. He had Papea. She loved him, and that was enough. With Papea's encouragement, Nero came to a final decision. His mother had to die. Coming up, Nero makes the harsh choice between family and power. Now back to the story. In early 59 CE, 22-year-old Nero planned the assassination of his own mother. Agrippina had reached the highest position a Roman woman had ever claimed, but she had fallen from grace in a most spectacular fashion. Nero finally realized that her conniving schemes, which had successfully brought him to the throne, could be used against him, too. With her endless commentary on Nero's personal choices becoming more brazen and public, Nero knew it was time for Agrippina to have an accident. Nero couldn't simply have his mother executed like another dissident. A mother was considered sacred in Roman society. He would quickly lose the public adoration that he so deeply cherished if he murdered her in cold blood. So Nero came up with a series of plans to make Agrippina's death seem accidental. And each one was more absurd than the next. According to Suetonius, 
he first tried to poison her three times. However, rumor of the plan got back to Agrippina, and she started to take precautions by building up an immunity to his poison of choice, or simply by avoiding the particular dish that was tainted. Agrippina wasn't going to let herself be so easily duped. After all, it was poison that put Nero on the throne. His next thought was to rig a mechanical device that would collapse her bedroom ceiling and crush her while she slept. But she caught wind of that plot as well and escaped. Agrippina didn't want to keep up the game of cat and mouse with her own son. It was childish. So when Nero sent a letter to her in Antium asking for a reconciliation, she hoped it signaled an end to their little feud. She accepted Nero's invitation to meet him near Naples for a banquet. Nero even sent a private boat to pick her up that night. But according to Tacitus's account, the boat itself was Nero's final assassination attempt. The craft was built to collapse once offshore in the open water, and it worked perfectly. While on its way to Naples, the boat began to sink quickly, tossing Agrippina into the water where she managed to swim back to the shoreline. Nero couldn't believe it. His mother seemed to be unkillable, and he was growing tired of this subterfuge. So he decided on a different route. He invented an assassination plot. When one of Agrippina's messengers came to the palace, Nero claimed his mother had sent the man to kill him. With this alleged threat, Nero was able to convince the Senate to allow Agrippina's execution. Nero sent a Navy officer to Antium, where Agrippina solemnly greeted the man. Though she understood why the officer was there, Agrippina tried to play dumb. When that didn't work, she pleaded for her life. When she saw the assassin had no intention of leaving her alive, she finally pointed to her womb and told him to strike her in the fatal spot that had borne her evil son. So he did, beating and stabbing her in the belly until Agrippina was dead. Nero was finally free of Agrippina's overbearing criticism. Three years later in 62 CE, he married his mistress, Papea and banished Octavia from Rome. Nero finally had everything he wanted. Unfortunately, his twisted win coincided perfectly with the end of his bright future as an emperor. With his mother out of the picture, Nero was finally free to spend his days making music and making love. He had little interest in the actual administration of Rome. Instead, he simply wanted to keep himself and his people happy with entertainment. Unfortunately, his advisors didn't agree. Seneca had encouraged Nero to make his way out from under Agrippina's thumb, but he didn't condone her violent end. He was especially concerned that it indicated a budding attitude towards dissension of all kinds. It was the sign of a budding tyrant. Seneca decided it was a good time to retire to the countryside, where he could write and offer advice from afar. Around the same time, the Praetorian leader Burrus died abruptly from throat cancer. 
There were quiet rumors that Nero might have poisoned him, but most historians agree that this was unlikely. In any case, the Praetorian Guard was now in need of a new leader. The void left by Nero's two original advisors was quickly filled by Tigellinus, his old nighttime confidant. Tigellinus was wholly devoted to Nero. Under his command, the Praetorians behaved more like a tyrannical private police force, and they were at Nero's beck and call. So when Roman citizens began to vandalize portraits of Nero's new wife, Papea, it was a simple matter to dispatch the Praetorians into the city. Unfortunately, this show of force did nothing to solve the real problems at play. The desecration of Papea's portraits revealed the truth about the public's changing opinion of Nero, Papea, and Octavia. The Romans knew Octavia was from the royal bloodline of Rome's hero Augustus, and Nero had shamed and mistreated her. The public still cared for Octavia, even if Nero did not. As the wave of public opinion started to turn against him, Nero tried to slander Octavia's reputation. He claimed she'd had affairs. But the people didn't buy it, considering that Nero had no evidence for his claims. Even when he had Tigellinus torture Octavia's servants to force confessions of her crimes, none of them caved. They were loyal to the death. One of Octavia's chambermaids supposedly even spit on Tigellinus just before she died. Failing to destroy Octavia's reputation only made Nero angrier. He had never inspired that kind of devotion. Still, Nero had his yes-men, and he was determined to use them. Nero recruited a naval officer into his scheme. He told the officer that he could either publicly testify to having slept with Octavia or face execution. The naval officer didn't hesitate. He went immediately to the Senate with a masterful performance of his affair with the former empress. With his evidence finally in place, Nero had Octavia quietly executed in June of 62 CE. Of course, his love for theatrics didn't let her death stay quiet for long. Nero had Octavia's head brought to Papea as a token. This set off a firestorm of conflicting rumors, and the Roman people finally learned that Octavia was dead. Historians are divided on how specifically Nero survived the outrage that followed Octavia's execution. Some point to his tyrannical praetorians as his primary tool for keeping power. But other ancient historians report that Nero simply doubled down on his bread and circuses stratagem and it worked. Nero provided richer lottery rewards and more violently spectacular chariot races and gladiator games. With this overwhelming display of public appeasement, Nero managed to stay in power. Of course, he was more than happy to let the Senate run Rome from day to day. In doing so, Nero was free to pursue his original life goal, the arts. He took up the lyre, a stringed instrument, and had daily lessons with professionals. He sang and wrote poetry and hosted lavish gatherings for artists and performers. Eventually, Nero believed he was ready to begin his life's true pursuit as a public performer. 
he planned a national tour in which he would sing and read poetry for his people. However, some of his advisors suggested he begin his tour outside Rome. After all, the morale of the people buoyed or toppled emperors. If he performed before he was fully ready, it would give people a reason to mock him. Just as adoration was Nero's greatest desire, mockery was his greatest fear. So Nero embarked on an artistic retreat at his home in Antium, where Agrippina had spent her final days. There he performed for small crowds, earning daily praise. But then, on July 18th, 64 CE, Nero received an alarming message from Rome. The city was on fire. Nero had no experience in any sort of emergency, but he knew he had to join his people in fighting the fire. He rushed back to Rome and into the flames. Unfortunately, Nero didn't realize that he was rushing toward his downfall. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll hear about the terrible fire that ravaged the Roman capital. We'll also investigate the slow decline of Nero and his growing rage against an insurgent cult. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Andrew Messer with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Richard again. Searching for your new favorite show? Remember to follow the newest Spotify original from Parcast, Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, catch an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>